0: This is
1: the fall line. Well, after I had Raymond, um, like I said, the label was very, very fast, and I was happy that it was a boy, a beautiful boy, beautiful baby boy. I was, I was in awe with him. The year
0: was 1978. Atlanta's police department was in the midst of a hiring and promotion freeze that stemmed from a series of discrimination lawsuits. According to Grady Hospital's website, that same year, quote, a medical school was established at Morehouse College to assume up to half the responsibility for patient care, medical education and clinical research at Grady. In January, UK Band the Sex Pistols played their first American show right here in Atlanta. This is notable mostly because the bassist, Sid Vicious, slit his wrist after the show. He wasn't taken to Grady. He ended up at Piedmont Hospital's emergency room. That spring brought record high temperatures. Atlanta's first black mayor, Maynard Jackson, was in his first term of office. In the fall of 1978, the city was comparatively quiet. The first of the Atlanta child murders was still months away. November 1st was not a major moment in Atlanta's story, but it was and is in Donna Green's. On this day, her son, Raymond Lamar Green, Jr., was born at Grady Memorial Hospital. Raymond was Donna's second child with the man who would later become her husband, Raymond Green, Sr. She was 16, and her daughter wasn't yet two. She lived at the Carver Homes Housing Project with her parents, her siblings, and her oldest child. In Atlanta, many public housing units had that home suffix attached. Techwood, Bowen, Grady, Perry, Capital. One of the children slain in the Atlanta child murders, Charles Stevens, was actually killed on his way to the Carver complex. Carver Homes has since been demolished, an effect of Atlanta trying to dispel its reputation as what Creed of Loafing called, quote, one of the worst public housing providers in the country. It was eventually replaced with Carver Village, which had a limited number of subsidized apartments available. The Carver Homes daughter members are different from the stories that popped up in late 80s Atlanta reporting. In local paper Creative Loafing, residents described pushing couches in front of their doors to keep the drug crime out. According to longtime residents, the crime in Carver was at first limited to a building or two, places you just didn't go, but eventually spread out and through the complex. The 1970s offered up a different picture. Carver Homes were built in the 1960s and were once considered one of the best housing projects in the area. In the late 1970s, when Donna lived there, community activist Wilma Jackson-Jones remembered the complex as community-minded and politically active, with regular fish fries, grassroots political campaigns, and lots of hope that Atlanta would concentrate its efforts and money on what Creed of Loafing called, quote, the neglected South Side. Carver Homes had an active tenant board that, like most of the other black-majority public housing projects, was run by women. Donna was surrounded by people who were active and actively involved in one another's lives, both as friends and neighbors and in more organized capacities. Her mother even worked for the housing authority, and she loved it, Donna told us. So her mother directly tied into the running of her community. But she was gone a lot, too. Her job had her leaving early in the mornings when it was still dark out and getting home late after dinner. Donna and her siblings were left to their own devices. Donna has been working on a book for some time, and she was kind enough to share her work to help us paint a picture of what her life was like then. She remembers being out past sundown as a kid, skating around the complex and having fun. But she can also remember the times her mother got home early and the slap she got for being out so late, Donna describes their relationship as difficult. Her mother wrote a hard line regarding her children's behavior, but she was rarely there to enforce it. Donna remembers mostly harsh words and demands for obedience, not the closeness she craved. In Donna's own words, her response was to act out. There was a lot of talking back and plenty of punishments to show for it. She can remember sneaking out of her bedroom window to hang out with friends. Many small acts of rebellion came between a mother and daughter who didn't really understand each other. Donna says that one of the most important things she learned was to keep her mouth shut. She talked back to her mother and pay the price, but gossiping about other girls in the neighborhood led to more serious problems. Donna remembers one time in particular, when she'd been talking with her friends about a girl that we'll call Tiffany. The other girls called Tiffany a slut, something that Donna didn't even really understand at the time, though she went along with the flow of conversation. A few weeks later, she found herself outside on a friend's porch, the same friend who'd got her talking about Tiffany in the first place, only to be surrounded by Tiffany and two of her friends. Tiffany had a stick. After a tense 10 minutes of crying, begging, and shouting, Donna was unharmed, but she came to realize that her so-called friends had run right to Tiffany and blamed the whole conversation on Donna. After that, Donna learned there were limitations to trust in the neighborhood and that she had to be careful and quiet. It was a lonely way to live. Donna had a hard time in school. Likely dyslexic but not formally diagnosed, she was shuffled off to special education classes and teased for it. As a teenager, she wasn't used to much attention, so when a young man approached her on the street and said, I'm going to marry you, Donna was a goner. His name was Raymond, and he was 19 years old. Donna was 14. Soon enough, they were an item. And not long after that, Donna was pregnant with her first child. She had a girl named Ramonda, called Monda by the family. Donna's mother was understandably upset. She fussed a lot, berating Donna about her lost future. And she'd expected more of Donna and for Donna. Baby Raymond Jr., who the family called Lamar, would arrive before Mondo was out of diapers. Donna continued to live with her mother and siblings, though she saw Raymond Sr. regularly. He would struggle with addiction at various points in their relationship, but she says that he was a kind father, sweet with the children and gentle-natured. Donna's life as a new mother was lonely and isolated, though she was surrounded by a big family and plenty of neighbors. She'd sometimes see her school friends in new outfits, going to high school games or parties, and they'd ask if she wanted to go. She couldn't, she didn't have a sitter. She didn't know when or if she would make it back to school. And eventually, those invitations stopped coming. All in all, Donna was a good mother, but she was a young one. She was isolated in the way so many can be in the first few months after a child's birth. She'd grown up not being warned away from strangers, and though she was quiet, was eager for a little kindness. And that marked her. When you meet the adult version of Donna in 2018, it's hard to imagine that she was ever naive. Donna is analytical, razor sharp, really. And now the mother of six, she's also a missing persons advocate who works with the likes of Nick NCMEC and Q and who organizes events for the families of other missing children, tapping into her contacts and resources to send out press releases and organize memorials. Most recently, she did just that for the Milbrook Twins to commemorate the 28th anniversary of their disappearance. Donna's face can be seen in a dozen articles about advocacy and the importance of liaison between police departments and grieving families. She's done a lot, and she has no plans to stop. If you've seen Raymond mentioned anywhere, it's a result of Donna's hard work over the past 39 years. But we all know that wisdom comes in hindsight. It's hard to imagine the life of a teenage mother in 1978 when there were no national campaigns to teach hospital staff about abduction or security braces on infants or the widespread knowledge that a newborn baby might be at the risk of kidnap. But these events did occur. During our research, we found instances of Atlanta hospital kidnappings dating back to the 1930s. Yet, there was no code pink drill or double locking doors. There was no culture of suspicion. Women were not viewed as dangerous, especially by other women. So when you listen to Donna's story, remember that. Raymond came quickly. This being her second child, Donna was familiar with the signs. She went into a three-hour labor the same day that Raymond was born, and she barely made it to the hospital in time. According to her, she practically had him on the way off the elevator. It was an easy birth without complications, and she was discharged on November 4th. Unlike many new mothers on the ward, Donna didn't even have a roommate. Her recovery was uneventful, though she missed her daughter, Manda, and was lonely at the hospital. That would have been the end of her Grady story, and Raymond's, except that she encountered a woman at the hospital, in the supposedly off-limit maternity ward, who had interrupted. Donna was left with nothing. When we try to talk about Raymond, we're faced with this concept of a baby rather than the sense of a real one. He wasn't developed enough to have a favorite toy, or a funny way of sleeping, or a special laugh. So Raymond's story is all what could have been and not what is. We begin and end with a woman who called herself Lisa Morris. She was youngish, light-complected, a black woman who wore her hair wrapped tightly in a scarf. Medium build, medium height. A friendly smile and what Donna remembers as kind eyes. Nothing about her stood out. In fact, Donna wasn't able to remember her with precise detail until she worked with a sketch artist from Mac in 2007 and then more recently with the GBI's forensic artist to develop a description. Lisa Morris first approached Donna outside of the nursery. Donna, hours out from giving birth, stood watching her son through the wall of glass. And that's when Lisa made her move.
1: She walked up to the nursery. She stood there for a while, and then it's just, it was just she and I there. And she asked me what, which baby was mine. And when I pointed to Raymond, she came come in and know how beautiful he was. And I was comfortable with her. And I asked her, oh, did you just have a baby? She said, no, my sister just had a baby. And she pointed at a baby whose last name was Morris. And she said, well, can I come in your room? Because my sister's sleeping. I don't want to disturb her. And of course I said, yes. You know, I didn't think anything of it. I'm young. I'm 16. I mean, you know. She stayed long enough for, uh, she asked me no questions or anything. She stayed long enough for me to be comfortable with her. So she said, I'll be back, you know, so she left.
0: Those glass-walled observation nurseries, we've all seen them in movies. Less so in real life as rooming in has become more popular. That's the practice of having a baby stay in the room with her mother. And now fathers are much more involved in the birth process. They're not sitting around in waiting rooms, waiting to glimpse a glassed sea of infants to pick out their own based on a name tag. Parents have their babies close at hand. Another movie trope are the conversations that used to happen in front of those observation windows. We'd see new parents, giddy and exhausted, and proud relatives straining to glimpse a family resemblance. It's the perfect setting for a predator. People have their guard down, ready to show off their new babies to anyone who happens by. And Lisa Morris honed in on Donna with an accuracy that makes it clear. This was not a spur-of-the-moment kidnapping. She had a plan. It wasn't long before she appeared again, this time at Donna's hospital room door. Lisa invited herself in. Through the guise of friendly conversation, she began to gather information.
1: She looked at him, whatever, and we talked a little while, and when they took him out, you know, she started asking questions like... What's his whole name? I gave it to her. You know, I told her well, I told her the first name and the last name. She was like, Well, what's his middle name? And I told her, you know, what's his dad name? I told her. I'm not even thinking, oh, she's nosy or anything. I'm pretty because she appeared to be young. And so I'm thinking maybe I just met a friend. You know, she seemed to be interested in me. And and um, at that time, that was something that was good for me. That night I went to sleep, and when I woke up, what woke me up is I heard something. And when I woke up, she she was... I don't know whether she was coming out of the closet or she was in the closet, and the reason why I say that was because the closet door was open, and... Maybe halfway, I don't know whether she was in or out of the closet, but the closet door was open and she was standing right there. And when I woke up, I asked her, I said, well, what are you doing? And I said, you're going to get in trouble being here this late. I I don't know what time it was because, like I say, I was, you know, in and out. And she said, um, I know I just come in here to see you something to that effect and just go back to sleep. And I did. I went back to sleep. I didn't think anything else about it It did not cross my mind again.
0: Raymond wasn't in Donna's room that night, but she guesses that Lisa thought he would be. But it didn't strike Donna at the time. In the hospital alone, and grateful for companionship, she didn't ask questions. She didn't find it strange when, the next day at discharge, she saw Lisa again. As Donna bundled up Raymond for his first car ride, Lisa gradually entered the conversation, making nice with the relatives come to retrieve the new mother. Before long, she'd talk them into giving her a ride home. Donna's family was happy enough to oblige. This polite gesture gave Lisa some very vital information. You see, they dropped Donna off first. That's how Lisa learned where she lived.
2: Stress, sleep, recovery... Whether we're in the gym or at work, these things shape how we perform. One thing we've both added to our daily routine, and it's helped make a noticeable difference for us, is NuCalm. Brooke told me about her NuCalm experience this week. She's been using it while her baby naps. So for her, the 50-minute reboot session is perfect. It's a little time she can carve out of her day to relax, de-stress, and well, reboot. By the time the baby's awake, Brooke feels refreshed and ready for the rest of her day too. It's imperative to your health and happiness to be able to manage stress and not be managed by it. New Calm gives you the power and control to relax and recharge anywhere, anytime. Own the day with New Calm. New Calm is the only stress management system of its kind, clinically proven in over one million sessions to improve your sleep, reduce your stress, and boost your recovery without drugs and side effects. The New Calm system uses cutting-edge neuroscience and consists of three non-invasive and non-pharmaceutical items, all of which are included in your monthly subscription that costs less than a daily cup of coffee. The whole process is easy to use and to work into your daily routine to achieve better sleep, reduction in stress, and boost in recovery. Do what we did. Own the day with NuCalm. We have a special link set up specifically for our listeners. Go to fallnucalm.com and get 50% off your 30-day subscription of NuCalm and their money-back guarantee. That's fall, dot FALL
0: Donna was so grateful to be home to sleep with both her babies in bed at once. Monda had missed her mother so much that she wouldn't let go of her, and Donna had to sleep sitting up in bed, a bassinet in one arm, and Monda in the other. She remembers the absolute pleasure of that first evening home, but also the overwhelming realization that she was responsible for two tiny people. She didn't get much rest. Donna had barely settled into a rhythm with her newborn when the visits began. Friends, neighbors, friends of friends, and everyone in between came by to see the baby. It seemed like someone was always coming or going. And in that time, Lisa Morris appeared again. She had likely been waiting for just such a moment, when she might blend into the stream of guests, another friendly face, another kind word. On November 6th, Donna was home alone with her brother Tony and the children. After two days of nonstop socializing, it wasn't strange for another knock to come. But Donna was more than a little taken aback when she opened the door.
1: When she knocked on the door, and I opened the door, she had this big, bright smile on her face. She was like, hey... I think that's when my first attempt kind of went up a little bit, but not a lot. And I was like, what are you doing here? And she was like, I just came to see how you and and the baby were doing. <clears throat> well, um, I I looked out the door to see if was anybody else out there. I said, well, uh, how did you get here? You know, she said, well, I caught the bus. She came in. My brother was sitting there, my oldest brother. And um, he was kind of looking at TV and nodding. So she stayed, somebody else came in and left out, and she stayed about an hour, maybe two. And then when I said, well, I'm getting ready to go take a shower, she said, oh, well, I'll just stay and wait till you finish. Then my antenna went up a little bit more. I was a little uncomfortable with that, but I think nothing of it, because where do I I put that uncomfortableness? What is that about? You know, at that time, I didn't know anything about that. So, but it, it sparked me to tell my brother I'm going to take a shower wash the baby. Dismissing
0: discomfort and service of politeness. That is ingrained in all of us, especially in the South. Donna was 16 years old and didn't know how to get rid of the guest who had invited herself in. She figured that if she removed herself, Lisa might get the hen and leave. She asked her brother Tony to watch Raymond and left the baby sleeping on the couch. She can remember his precise position. She's relived these moments for the past 40 years, imagining how a hundred tiny changes might have resulted in a different and happier ending. Even as she headed upstairs, Donna couldn't shake the sick sense of nervousness that had begun to crawl up in her belly.
1: I was in the shower, maybe 10 minutes, 15 minutes seemed like, but some kept saying, get out the shower, get out the shower, get out the shower, and... I couldn't shake it. So I got out of the shower, put on my clothes more in a hurry than I would normally do, but I could, didn't know what was wrong. So I went downstairs. When you come down these steps, you come down this way, and then you have to turn to the right and go back down. But when you come down the first set of steps, the sofa is spread out right there, so I should have seen the baby on the sofa. I didn't. Then I kind of jumped down the steps, coming real fast, and my brother was asleep. And I woke him up and I asked him, Tony, with the baby? And he said, well, the baby started crying and she just picked the baby up and walked to the door. And I went because this is the sofa, but you got to go past the sofa to get to it. And she was gone. I ran out the door. I looked around. I asked somebody, that was next door. Did you see a lady with a baby? Somebody said, and I'm, I think it was the girl next door, um, says, They saw a lady with a baby going down the street in a brown car. She got in a brown car and they took off real fast. That's what somebody said they saw.
0: Donna's screams gathered a crowd. Soon enough, a neighbor volunteered that she'd seen a man driving the car. It seems that Lisa had an accomplice. Donna ran inside to call the police, and after that, the next few hours blurred together in an adrenaline-fueled panic. She isn't sure how long it took for the police to arrive. One of the officers, W.D. Swinney, would also be an investigator in the 1981 case of kidnap baby Shante Alexander. The police did not descend upon her apartment in droves. Donna remembers one patrol car, maybe two. After taking her statement, the responding officers drove Donna to Raymond Sr.'s place to both inform him of the abduction and get his statement. But he wasn't home though he'd made it to her apartment by the time the police brought her back. Mostly, Donna remembers answering a lot of questions. They took down her information, and then she waited. We have not shied away from critiquing police investigations or lack of media coverage in the cases we've covered, or in giving credit when it's due, when that's been the case. In the kidnapping of Raymond Green, the original official response feels light years away from the 1981 response for Shante Alexander. By then, the APD was so effective that Sandra Alexander remembers an Officer Huffman, the man who found Shantae, so fondly that she tears up when she tells his story. We've told you about the press coverage in the Alexander case, and you'll hear more about that next episode. When Raymond disappeared, a single article appeared on his case. We've read it. It was four paragraphs long and appeared on page C10 of the morning edition. It describes Donna taking a nap, not a shower. It reports her as leaving the baby with Lisa, not her brother. And that's it. Nothing else exists. And as for continued investigation, well, my co-host spoke at length with Donna about how it proceeded.
3: I'm curious about, from you recounting the events, there would have been nurses and staff in the hospital who maybe saw her face. And then when you guys drove home that day was it raymond senior who drove you home or maybe your brother
1: i think it was i i I can't remember whether it was my mom and her friend i think it was no it was raymond and his friend and they dropped us off they dropped me off and they took her. But she went, they said that they, because I said, well, where did she stay? Because the police was asking the same thing. And they said they dropped her off on Stanton Road. She did not go into any apartment complex. They just dropped, she asked them to drop her off on the corner. And they just dropped her off and went on. So they, she didn't really take them anywhere. So they didn't have a direct point because she didn't take, you know, she didn't let them drop her off at home.
3: So there could have been like a radius around that corner where she could have walked or she could have taken a bus. Right. So that would have widened the radius. Or she had
1: somebody pick her
3: up. Right. Yeah. But at that point, so they would have had the three of you in the car with her Mm -hmm. who'd seen her face. Um, The neighbor woman saw her walk out, another person who saw her face, presumably. Mm -hmm your brother, when Mm -hmm. she came in, saw her face, and maybe some hospital staff. Do you know if there was ever an attempt by the police to get all of those people together to do a composite sketch of her face?
1: There wasn't any attempt at that. What they did do was ask me to come down. I came down to to the um, police department, and they just put some pictures out, and they, they asked me, you know, point at the one that would maybe be the color of her. Point the one that may have the hair of her
3: mm-hmm. uh,
1: uh, like that, I see, yeah,
3: I'm trying to think about today, even if we eliminated surveillance video and things like that. It seems like a response of a child who went missing today, the police might have compiled all those people, gotten them together, and gotten a pretty good sketch of her face, and it would have been on every news channel, right. What was on the news at that time?
1: I didn't see where anything was on the news about him. The uh, only thing I saw was a little article in the back of the paper. That was no pretty pictures. much it. No pictures.
3: So, to your knowledge, other than people who happen to know you and live in the complex with you, nobody was looking out for this woman?
1: No. No. Nobody was looking out for her. It, all that I thought that should have happened, although I was 16, all that I thought that should have happened, none of that did. And it wasn't long before I began to realize there's not much going to be done for him.
0: Donna would wait two years to hear anything about Raymond's case. And even then, it was because of Shante Alexander's kidnapping and subsequent reunion that Raymond would be mentioned in the news at all. But that attention faded away again as quickly as it came. Over the years, Donna has contacted the ADP, but she couldn't find out any new information on the case. In fact, in 2003, it became apparent the original file had been lost. This discovery came at the urging of 11 Alive News in Atlanta, who eventually arranged for GBI sketch artist Kelly Lawson to meet with Donna. They developed sketches of the kidnapper and age progressions of Raymond, all based on memory. The AJC covered this development as well. They spoke to the Atlanta police in 2003 and reported the following. I don't know where the file is, stated an Atlanta police lieutenant. All I can say is the agency's file retention program has changed a lot since then. The lieutenant concedes the department was forced to launch a brand-new investigation into the decades-old case. In 2007, APD worked to have Raymond entered into the NickMax system and began fielding tips on his case. It's worth noting that since 2010, when Donna again reached out to establish a case file for Raymond, the Atlanta Police Department has maintained an active file on his case and has worked to follow tips as far as South America. As Donna grew older, learned about the various agencies who work with and for families of missing people, she's gotten Raymond listed in all of the major databases for missing persons. Since her most recent move back to Atlanta this fall, she's had more sustained contact with local law enforcement. Our own calls to APD have shown them to be responsive, with more than one official asking that Donna call them personally if she has any concerns or questions about Raymond's case. In regard to sharing of case files and other information, they've been remarkably transparent and willing to participate in the effort to publicize Raymond's disappearance. Most recently, there's even been talk of a billboard. But, as we, and APD, recognize, this doesn't answer the essential problem that, after 40 years, what is there to investigate? A cold case of a missing infant is incredibly difficult to approach, particularly when there's nothing to go on not even a picture of the baby. It was even more so in 1978. When we spoke to former Atlanta Police Department Lieutenant Danny Egan, he addressed this, both in terms of the initial search and as a cold case investigation.
4: You don't even know who you're looking for. And of course, even if you have a photograph of a baby, an infant, uh, some child that's three weeks old uh, or, or less, kidnapped from the hospital. That child is not going to look the same in two years. I mean, the, the, uh, the, the photograph that you possess right then to identify that child is become, going to become obsolete very quickly. So that's a huge problem. Going back 40 years ago at Grady Hospital, when a child is snatched at Grady Hospital, once again, Grady's wide open. There are no such thing as cameras you know, taking pictures in the hallways and the parking lots and cameras mounted outside on the sidewalks. I mean, come on. Back then, you could probably have uh, this happen on a daily basis and, and very few people would get caught immediately because there's just not the tools of technology available back then that are available now. So, back in the day, a baby's taken from Grady. You go and to the scene, you find out where the baby's taken from. Maybe there's some place that you could possibly dust for some fingerprints, maybe not, but you try your best. Maybe maybe you'll get lucky. Then you start interviewing staff. You start interviewing other patients, people that may have been visiting these patients at the hospital. Did you see anything? Can you tell me anything at all that might help me? Then you put the feelers out uh, to the community. Uh, we're looking for this baby, uh, uh, likely taken by a female suspect who's now going to be in possession of a baby that she didn't have two days ago. We need your help. That's kind of where the investigation goes. You can call the FBI and they're going to do the same thing. Maybe they have more resources and uh, for manpower, more money to put into it. But back then, I mean, the technology is uh, interviewing people and rattling, rattling doors, trying to shake something loose. Uh, t- today, it's, a lot more technology behind an investigation, which makes things a lot easier. Once again, back in the day, I mean, even if you found the baby, um, you you say, "Well, let's do a DNA test." Well, hell, nobody knew anything about a DNA test back then; it hadn't been invented. This is new technology now. You could readily tell, real quickly, is this is this the child we're looking for? Even even twenty years down the road, when when it's an adult, you could say, "Well, this this is the child that was taken." But without that technology, you can't do it. Uh, you, you would have to to get lucky. So uh, we, you know, do what you can do and, and, and then know that you've done your best. And then there's not a lot else you can do except, you know, move on to the next case and wait till something happens that might provide a lead that you can follow up on. So, back to
0: 1978, right after Raymond's disappearance. At six weeks out, Donna had to go to Grady for a postpartum checkup. It's difficult to imagine what that would have felt like, to go in, sore, lactating, and without the baby she should have been there to discuss. Donna was withdrawn and the doctors worried. She hadn't talked to anyone about her situation. She had not been made aware of any resources that were available or even given a blueprint, as she calls it, of what she should do. She didn't know what the police were going to do to find Raymond she took care of her daughter, and she numbly waited for news. People in Carver homes had begun to talk about her, and that drove her even further inward. They blamed her for opening the door to Lisa, for inviting her in, for trusting her brother to watch Raymond so that she could shower. Rumor was Donna had just given her baby away. Donna heard new versions every day, and she was tired of defending herself. She was tired of reliving those moments. So when she went in for a postpartum checkup and didn't want to answer the doctor's questions, he sent her to Grady's Behavioral Health Wing to speak with someone.
1: Part of it was because Raymond was missing, and I was scared, and I was hurt, and I was alone. The other part of it is, sent me to the eighth floor, come on. You know, Grady Eight got a reputation in it now. If you go to Grady, we know you're crazy. So I didn't want to go there. But when I talked to the lady... She was trying to talk to me, but my nerves were so bad because in my mind, they going to keep me on the eighth floor, and I didn't do anything wrong. So I'm playing this tape that you're going to keep me up here because my baby got missing and I didn't do nothing. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter what she said, you're going to keep me because my baby's missing and I didn't do nothing. And um. I think after she kind of got me calmed down, and then she kind of said, well, you know, maybe this wasn't a good idea to have you. I know the eighth floor is a reputation and whatever, you know, but you're going to have to deal with this. And if you don't deal with it now, eventually you're going to have to deal with it. And while she was saying all that, I'm thinking if my friends know that they sent me to the eighth floor, you know, I'm already got this baby that's missing and people in the community. Some say I gave my baby away. Some said my baby um, was found dead. I had somebody call the house and let a baby cry and all that. So I had so much to deal with on my own in a way that, and I, you know, who could I talk to about it? And, and although I had, you know, friends or whatever, but then I walked up on some friends. They didn't know I was there, and they was talking about, they believe I gave the baby away. So I had to deal with so much by myself that when she was talking to me, I'm just thinking, when they find this out that I was at the floor, I'm sure enough going to be ostracized, and I didn't want that because I didn't know where to go with, where you go with that pain, what do you do with it, you know? So she asked me, she said, well, do you want to meet, um... Maybe we can meet at meet at a park or something like that. You know, maybe I'll buy you lunch and go to the park. I said, okay. You know, and she gave me her card, but I didn't want, to, you know, I just wanted to get out of there because I didn't want nobody to make me look different from the crowd that I was in. I didn't. I didn't want to stand out because if I did, if I sat quietly, they said I was crazy or going crazy. If I laughed, they said, if I laughed at something, they said there's no way I'd be laughing if my baby just got missing. So I was already struggling with how to go back to normal where I wasn't looked upon, you know, so yeah. So I, I just didn't respond to her at all.
0: In true crime, it's become standard to talk about victims' reactions and whether they seem appropriate. Donna experienced that judgment up close in the years that followed Raymond's kidnapping. She never did seek out that counseling the eighth-floor doctor offered her. So she had to carry that loss with her through four more children who felt the absence of their brother. She didn't even have a photo to show them. That is until she was connected with Kelly Lawson, the forensic sketch artist for the GBI. Their meeting took place a few years back, recently enough that it's still fresh in Donna's mind. Kelly's too, though she draws hundreds of portraits a year traveling all over Georgia to do her job and catch memories while they're fresh. Kelly's office is just as fascinating as her family connection to the GBI. Her mother was the first sketch artist for the organization and was widely regarded as one of, if not the best, forensic artist in the country. When it came time for her to retire, she couldn't find a replacement that satisfied her. And so she trained Kelly, who'd attended school for fine art and soon found herself traveling all over the state, to do everything from clay reconstructions to sketches based on crime victims' memories. Her art is beautiful. Her office is lined with bold charcoal sketches that range from musicians like Travis Barker to Notorious B.I.G. to works in progress of missing and unidentified persons that the GBI calls upon her to complete. Recently, we spoke to Kelly at length about her process.
5: I would say that this is one of the most challenging things that have that I have had to do as a sketch artist, and that's to meet with the family member who doesn't have a photo of their missing baby and come up with a drawing of what that baby looks like. Part of the challenges with that is that, you know, I don't draw babies on a regular occasion. I typically draw adult males who have committed violent crimes. So that's what I'm set up to draw. I don't have pictures of babies. I don't have really any sort of reference material. So I try not to draw a baby um, that's very young unless it's necessary for the investigative purpose. In this particular case with Donna Green, I drew her baby when he was younger as a small child, not for investigative purposes, but just because that was one of the things that she felt like she was missing out on the most when her baby was stolen. She missed out on his childhood. She was wanting to experience that in some way. So she came to me and asked me if I could draw a picture of what I thought he would have looked like when he was younger. And I used pictures of her other children to kind of see how he might have looked. And I asked her, you know, because she'd had seven other children, I said, you know, when, when Raymond was born, uh, which child did he most resemble? And she knew the answer to that question immediately, which really shocked me because, To me, all babies look alike, but she knew exactly which baby he favored the most. And I was able to then take photos of that child and see what other children in the family he looked like. And it gave me a pretty good idea of what Raymond looked like as a child and really as an adult as well. So working with the family is the most important part. Getting pictures of the other loved ones and relatives that that favor or have the family resemblance is really helpful. And in this particular case with Donna Green, I actually got to meet, I think, all of her children. So that helped immensely to see them in person and be able to put all that together in my mind.
0: When Donna received the sketch, it was transformative. She'd been dealing in fuzzy memories for years, and now she had two pictures of Raymond, one as a toddler and one as a man in his 30s. But what she didn't have was direction. Lisa Morris wasn't a real person, not in that identity at least. There was no such woman living in Atlanta. She did not have a sister on the ward. Nothing she told Donna about herself had been true. All Donna had to go on was that Raymond might have been sold outside of the country. Donna says the APD eventually suggested this to her after years of inactivity on the case. But based on other stories, Carlina White, Kamaya Mobley, and others who have been in the news over the years, kidnappers have generally stayed close to home. While children are certainly trafficked, or as is more likely with infants, sold in black market adoptions, those infants are, at least in the US, most likely to be white. We'd love to know what the APD based that opinion on, but we haven't seen the whole file. We're not sure if the APD questioned the staff about how Lisa Morris made her way onto the ward in the first place. We do know that Grady never contacted Donna. To be fair, Raymond was not taken from the hospital. That would have made the news if we can go by Shantay Alexander's case, but Grady was certainly at least partially responsible for Raymond's disappearance. Donna trusted Lisa because she was on the ward, safe by association. She's had 40 years to wonder just how Raymond's kidnapper made her way in and how she remained there for days, undisturbed by staff or security. In the last 39 years, there have been glimmers of hope. Four men have found Donna via social media and through missing person advocacy groups. At least one potential victim, a German man named Lenny, has taken a DNA test that proved he's not Raymond. Another man from Belize was also ruled out via DNA. Lenny, the German, has maintained a close, if complicated, relationship with Donna, and we'll delve into that in a future episode. Donna is still left with nothing to go on but the hope that whoever Lisa was, she cared for Raymond or took him to people who loved him. That he might hear this story and think back on all the small strangeness in his life. Missing stories, confusing paperwork, family secrets, and reach out. It's that hope that keeps Donna going. She's now a public speaker and organizer who hopes to create her own podcast and provide information for the families of missing persons. She wants to clue them into everything they should and should not do and what resources are available to them. Just what she needed when Raymond was stolen. If you'd like to contact Donna, she's asked us to include information in the show notes. She wants to support the families of missing persons in whatever way she can. The goal of the fall line has always been a mixed bag. Part storytelling, part investigation, part reconstruction of cases that were never truly whole. But at the heart, the point of this whole thing is amplification. The families have been speaking for years, decades even, but no one has been listening. We always hope to provide what skills we have in the aid of pushing the investigation forward, but in Raymond's case, there aren't any threads to unwind. There's an afternoon in November, 40 years gone, without a scrap of paperwork to dissect. As former Sergeant Danny Agin pointed out in our interview with him, APD has moved three times since Raymond went missing, and all of the original hard copies weren't digitized. They were stored as is. Somewhere along the way, some of those files went missing. Something that Danny says is never the intent, but occasionally happens in large departments with thousands of case files open or closed. And Raymond's case is open. That file could be buried somewhere, but the APD can't locate it. They've begun a new one with as much info as can have been gathered in eight years, but very little remains of the origins of the case. There's one newspaper article, the same one Donna took down to the police department when she wanted to establish contact and show them that her son indeed had gone missing. Outside of APD, other methods have so far failed to produce results. The DNA ancestry test we ran for Donna turned up no connections that might lead her to her son. Every single case we cover has its own set of needs. For Raymond, that need is awareness. Maybe even Raymond himself might hear it, if the audience stretches wide enough and if the right circumstances fall into place. So, share this episode. Share his NCMEC page, his Charlie Project entry, share Donna's website. Donna has told us that every time Raymond's case comes into the news again, she's at a loss for words. She's grateful and hopeful in the moment, but... She also knows that it's only a matter of time until he disappears again, under the piles of other stories that flood the news cycle. Raymond Lamar Green was five days old when he was kidnapped on November 5, 1978. He has black hair and brown eyes. Based on his siblings, he'd likely be around 5'10 and 180 pounds. At birth, he had a mildly lazy eye that may have corrected itself or been corrected in his lifetime. If you have any information regarding his disappearance or the woman who called herself Lisa Morris, please contact the Atlanta Police Department at 404 658 6666. Next time, the story of Shantae Alexander, kidnapped from Grady in the summer of 1981. Her mother's experience after the abduction is one of the strangest and most disturbing stories we've heard throughout our research on this case. We hope you'll join us then.